Okay, thank you very much, everyone. I think we'll, we'll make, a, make a start. Um, thank you for coming to this. This is the um, first of four lectures uh, on Tolkien. And um, I'm going to give the first two this week and next week. Next week it starts at four, by the way. Uh, there's a slight change in the timetable. And then the um, third and fourth week will be given by Dr. Solopova. Uh, and I'll say a bit more about that. Um, so if my voice gives out, by the way, I'm very sorry. Let us make a start then. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And there is perhaps no better way to start a lecture series on Tolkien than to use that opening sentence. The story behind it, if you may know, was that Tolkien one day was sitting in his house and marking it. Right, okay, let's, let's hear him, shall we? The actual beginning, it's not really the beginning, but after a flashpoint, because I remember very clearly, I mean, I took, um, I could still see the corner in, the, in my house in Trenton North, wherever it happened. I got an enormous pile of exam papers there, and uh, marking school examinations in the summertime is a enormous, um, very laborious, and unfortunately also boring. And I remember picking up a paper and actually find, nearly get an extra mark for it, an extra five mark clicking on one page and this particular paper is left blank. Nothing to read, so I scribble on it, I can't even in a hole in the ground to live the hobbit. The <laughs> hobbit, now okay. Wonderful story. Marking exam papers, just finds a blank sheet. Thinks fantastic and writes, off the top of his head, in a hole in the ground lived a hobbit. Now, when that actually happened is a matter of contention. Uh, Doug Anderson, and I've given you a reading list with some of these in, suggests it was between 1928 and 1930. Uh, John Ratcliffe puts it no earlier than 1930, but it was around that time. Whatever the date, it's undoubtedly a far better opening than when Mr Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11th birthday with a party of special magnificence there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton, which is the opening of The Lord of the Rings. Yet, even if I say those, either of those opening sentences are even the main Tolkien, um, I do have to say I have a certain chill and a sense of foreboding. That's nothing to do with the fact that the ghost of Professor Tolkien might appear in this lecture theatre um, or anything like that, um, but more really about the subject matter itself. And throughout these two talks, I'm going to be outlining Tolkien's career, his mythology, and some of his influences... <laughs> But I'm going to come back again and again to Tolkien's critics because I think they find us a, give us a very useful route into studying Tolkien himself. Um, and if you were to mention Tolkien, um, certainly in English faculties, more in the UK than, than in the States, it said, um, you might invite severe comments, and perhaps none more so than in this English faculty of all places. The irony is not lost on me, and I'm sure it's not lost on you. John Ronald Reuel Tolkien seems to provoke, evoke polarised views. He's adored, almost worshipped by some, that may be you, and vilified, almost demonised by others, that it may again be you. In both cases, this is rather disconcerting when you're trying to study him or try to talk about him. And it's sometimes hard to find objective studies in his writing, and the camps and people who get very entrenched about Tolkien allow themselves to all too easily fall into subjective diatribes arguing either way. That said, there's a lot of excellent books, and I've put these on the handout, the reading list, which is a select one, but we'll be adding a few more titles as we go along. But every now and then, um, Tolkien rouse or rouse about Tolkien flare up. At the year one, 2000, not year 1000, that's the last lecture, year 2000, there was a, a flurry of top 100 books, book of the century, all those sorts of things. And this was the big read, which was 2005, I think, 
whereas you see the Lord of the Rings won narrowly, well, no, it wasn't narrowly, it, it wiped the floor with Pride and Prejudice. Um, and this is, you know, for good or ill. And the problem is because as soon as things like this go out on the press, the guns are wheeled out both to attack Tolkien and defend him. Let us consider our own perception of Tolkien. I've no indication of what you know of him already. I'm assuming you know very little apart from you may have read the books. Um, but what mental image do you have of Tolkien? Um, perhaps something like this, or perhaps more like this. Ignore the subtitles. There he is walking along in Merton College. <laughs> So what do we have? An elderly, genial man walking through the college gardens, as I said, Merton, equally at happy, sitting by a fire, nursing a flagon of ale while attempting to blow smoke rings. A far cry, perhaps, from this, um, which is also Tolkien, although clearly a lot younger. And this is equally important, because I think it brings me to my first point, namely that Tolkien himself lived a long and, as we will see, eventful life, seeing out his 81st birthday. Importantly, over the life he changed, as we all do, and the fame that we now associate with him um, really only happened, the Tolkien phenomenon, towards the latter years of his life. To begin with, though, let me just say a few things of what I'm going to cover. Firstly, I'm going to look at Tolkien's career, his work as a medievalist, uh, a brief look at his fiction and how these two parts uh, merged. Uh, next week, I'm going to look a bit more at the fiction in depth, concentrating partly on The Lord of the Rings, um, and, and The Hobbit, but expanding also to look at some of the lesser-known works, such as The Lost Road, The Notion Club Papers, and to particularly explore what the full ambition of his mythology was. I don't have time to go through the cover of the plots of The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, so I'm assuming you're sort of kind of familiar with both of these, um, hopefully through reading the books, but possibly uh, through the films, um, for either Bakshi, Jackson or whatever. Um, if that is the case, please go away and read the books. They're far better. <laughs> now, it's customary in these, uh, uh, these occasions to sort of get you acquainted with the basic facts about Tolkien himself. He was born, which you, you may not know, in um, Bloemfontein in South Africa. Uh, his name, he claimed, um, was a joining of Tol and Kuhn, which basically means mad or bold, or overmode if you know your Battle of Malden. Um, he died in 1973 on the 2nd of October in Oxford, and he's buried just to the north of the city. In the course of his life, he was a soldier, lexicographer, and academic. In terms of his writing, he produced academic articles, a few scholarly books, poetry, some drama, and the fantasy works for which he is known throughout the world. Yet if one was to single out a single career which um, dominated his life, it's interesting what you or I would select. I guess for the majority of us, the answer would be Tolkien was a writer, um, you may even use the word fantasy, um, which he would have not objected to, by the way, so that's fine. Yet if we could ask him, what would he have classed himself? I, I suggest he probably would have said, I'm a university academic, specialised in the field of medieval literature and language, a philologist, indeed in his O'Donnell lecture, English and Welsh, Welsh in, delivered in 1955, he described himself as a philologist in the Anglo-Saxon and Germanic field. He may even have said that his fiction, though it occupied much of his life and imagination was really a secondary occupation. He came to England when he was a young, very young, and was schooled at King Edward School in Birmingham and then went to Exeter College here in Oxford uh, to read at the School of English Language and Literature, not in this building, as you will have gathered in that period. Uh, we know that from an early age he became interested in Old English and Middle English and was enthralled by the Old Norse legends 
Um, but he also clearly enjoyed the stories he found in uh, Andrew Lang's various coloured fairy tale books, the fantasy novels of William Morris and Lord Dunsany, to name but a couple. More surprisingly, maybe, certainly for a boy of that age, I certainly wasn't like this at his age, he displayed an interest in ancient, so you'd say obscure languages, uh, and he was introduced, for example, uh, to this when he got hold of a copy of Wright's Primer of the Gothic Language. He started looking at Old English at the age of 16 when his schoolmaster, George Brewerton, lent him an Anglo-Saxon primer. And when he won the Skeets Prize for English at Oxford in 1914, he spent his money on books about medieval Welsh and also he got in a few William Morris fantasy novels on the prize money. And this was what he concentrated his main academic studies on at Oxford and subsequent lecturing. But it wasn't just the languages that attracted Tolkien, though. A further glimpse of why he was drawn to the area can be gleaned from something which... Um, I found in some of his unpublished lecture notes a bit later on. This was written later in his life. There is a kinship, in spite of all the remoteness of the strangeness in Old English verse, with modern English. It is definitely part of the history of the mind and mood of England and the English. The men who made it walked this soil and under this sky. All the immense changes of life here in more than a thousand years have not yet made the end entirely foreign to the beginning. Throughout his life, like many scholars that preceded him, Tolkien liked to play with the language, which um, I think Dr. Solopova is going to pick up in her lecture on, on his languages. Um, and he was no stranger, for example, to writing mock Old Norse or pseudo-Old English. Uh, and they produced, um, in, in, when he was at Leeds, uh, a booklet called Songs for the Philologists, which is basically playing around with the language. If you get hold of a copy, by the way, keep it. It's going for about £20,000 at the moment. Um, it was a pastime, a secret vice, as he called it in, in his um, essay, which he continued late into his old age. Uh, he even writes a poem in 1967 to W.H. Auden, entitled For W.H.A., which is written in Old English. Returning to the brief biography, though, uh, at Oxford he was awarded a first-class degree in 1915, but by then, of course, the First World War was a year old. Appropriate to be talking about such things on a day like this. And Tolkien, like many young men of his generation, uh, enlisted. I don't think we can underestimate the impact of war on Tolkien and his generation. Not only the First War, which I'm going to return to now, but you also have to remember that in his late 40s, um, when he was beginning the struggle with the Lord of the Rings, the world was in an even bigger struggle, and he saw his son go off to action in World War II. But returning to the war in which Tolkien served, the so-called Great War, a phrase which are, might be ringing a bell, reminiscent of things in The Lord of the Rings when they describe the War of the Ring as being the great battle, the great struggle of the time, um, Tolkien's period of active service was short but notable. He was a battalion signal officer in the Lancashire Fusiliers and fought in the first weeks of the Somme Offensive in 1916. He took part in the attacks on Ovier, which, um, if I get my little stick, you can see... Little around here. Basically, the Battle of the Somme, if you don't know, is, is fought along the axis of this Roman road. And he was in this area here, in the ironically named Mash Valley. Um, he also took part in the fighting around Thiepville Woods and the German trenches beyond. And it's often been said that his experiences on the Somme emerge in his later work, notably his depictions in Lord of the Rings of uh, Mordor. So let me just read you something from that. <coughs> This is uh, Sam and Frodo and Gollum coming into Mordor. Before them, dark in the dawn, the great mountains reached up to roofs of smoke and cloud. Out from their feet were flung huge buttresses and broken hills that were now at the nearest scarce a dozen miles away. Frodo looked around in horror. Dreadful as the dead marshes had been and the arid moors of the no-man lands, 
More loathsome far was the country that the crawling day now slowly unveiled to his shrinking eyes. Even to the mere of dead faces some haggard phantom of green spring would come, but here neither spring nor summer would ever come again. Here nothing lived, not even the leprous growths that feed on rottenness. The gasping pools were choked with ash and crawling mines, sickly white and grey, as if the mountains had vomited the filth of their entrails upon the lands about. High mounds of crushed and powdered rock, great cones of earth, fire-blasted and poison-stained, stood like an obscene graveyard in endless rows, slowly revealed in the reluctant light. This is the language, of course, of the Western Front. Um, but it was not only the landscape that Tolkien saw which uh, destroyed around him. It was the lives of the soldiers he fought with. In particular, he lost two very close friends uh, uh, that he'd made at school at King Edwards, two members of a society. They made a little society called the Tea Club and Barovian Society, uh, namely Rob Gilson, who died in the opening attack on the Somme, July 1916, um, the attack on Baycourt Wood, just behind where Tolkien was eventually positioned a couple of days later, and Geoffrey Smith, a friend of his who died of gas gangrene in December 1916. All around him he saw death and destruction, the corpses of friend and foe alike, and in my view it's probably this experience that we can see in another passage from Lord of the Rings, uh, namely his uh, a sensitivity which is displayed, which is quite extraordinary, um, when Sam sees the death of an enemy soldier of the Haradrim, if I can find it here. It was Sam's first view of a battle of men against men, and he did not like it much. He was glad that he could not see the dead face of, of the soldier. He wondered what the man's name was and where he came from, and if he was really evil of heart, or what lies or threats had led him on the long march from his home, and if he would not really have rather stayed there in peace, all in a flash of thought which was quickly driven from his mind. Tolkien was invalided home in, in late 1916, early 17, and he never actually returned to the front, thank God. After the war, he took up a job in Oxford, working on the new Oxford English Dictionary, which was based then in the present History of Science Museum. Uh, but in 1920, he was appointed reader in English language at the University of Leeds, becoming a professor in 1924 at the grand age of 32. Beat me to it. Tolkien had been joined there in 1922 by the scholar E.V. Gordon, and the pair of them began an ambitious plan, ultimately unfulfilled, to produce a new series of editions of medieval texts. The only real result that they put out together was their edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in 1925, though each in turn then produced um, other individual editions. 1925 was also the year that he returned to his beloved Oxford as the Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon. He was at Pembroke College. He was aged 33 then an event which he himself found surprising, judging by comments in his valedictory address, uh, which he makes, obviously, at the end of his career. And according to the, the late Bruce Mitchell, who knew Tolkien well, um, it often led to some animosity towards Tolkien. At Oxford, Tolkien found an even more encouraging environment than he did at Leeds for his medieval interests. He surrounded himself with friends and colleagues and formed the uh, Coalbiters Club to discuss works of Old Norse and eventually the famous Inklings, a fluid group of academics, I think is the best way to describe them, who met regularly and irregularly, often in the Eagle and Child pub, um, to discuss tales and their writing. Humphrey Carpenter, this is the cover of his book, provides a, a rather nice little hypothetical description of one such evening of the Inklings, which I'll read a bit out from. There is no fixed hour at which the Inklings meet on Thursdays, but by general agreement, people turn up at any time between nine and half past ten, in the evening, that is. Tolkien begins to read from his manuscript. 
It is the chapter which describes the arrival of the hobbits and their companions at the doors of the mines of Moria, and which recounts the beginning of their journey through the darkness. Tolkien reads fluently. Occasionally he hesitates or stumbles, for the chapter is only in a rough draft, and he has some difficulty in making out a word here and there. The pages are closely covered. He is written on the back of old examination scripts. One or two details are still uncertain. He explains that he's not yet worked out an elvish version of the inscription over Moria Gate. He pauses and puts his manuscript aside. That's as far as it runs. The end is in rather a muddle, and there should have been a little song earlier in which Gimli recollects the ancient days when Moria was peopled by Jorin's folk. I don't think that's needed, says Lewis. Of Tolkien's poetry, he generally admires only the alliterative verse. Tolkien does not reply. Instead, he says, did you realise that the faint patter of feet is Gollum following them? He is to reappear now, you see. Oh, yes, I think that's clear, says Lewis. And the underground stuff is marvellous, the best of its kind I've ever read. Neither Haggard nor MacDonald equals it. Perhaps you could just spread yourself a little more in the scene where that thing comes out of the water and grabs at Frodo. It's a little unprepared at the moment. Shouldn't there be ripples on the water when it starts to move? Tolkien agrees and makes a note of this. It's a hypothetical description, but I think it's rather nice. His most important compatriot, as you would judge from that, that quote, was, of course, C.S. Lewis, or Jack Lewis, who was a kindred spirit, but only uh, not only academically and eventually religiously, but also in the writing of fiction. This was a relationship that was be fruitful for Tolkien, as it was for, for Lewis, but also for medieval studies at Oxford. Lewis heard all of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings in draft forms and encouraged Tolkien to finish both, though he admitted his role was more as a midwife for the books than as a parent. Tolkien, for his part, heard Lewis's writings, although he didn't have much time for the Narnia series, as he made quite clear to Lewis. Um, but more importantly, he played a part in Lewis's conversion to Catholicism. 1945, Tolkien was elected the Merton Professor of English <coughs> Language and Literature, and he retired in 1959. His final years were spent living in Oxford, then he moved to the south coast of England with his wife, but when she died he came back to Oxford and Merton looked after him uh, until he died in 1973. Let us just have a quick look at his career as a medievalist. On the handout, I've given two handouts, one's a reading list and one is a major list of his life and events and his publications uh, going down the right-hand column. Interspersed amongst the fiction novels, the Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, Farmer Giles, etc., are the occasional academic public publication and a selection of various poems. Mainly the poems are related to his mythology. The most striking thing I think you would say now, is if you look at this from uh, a modern period, was the sparse publication record. Remember, this is what he was paid to do. Um, even accepting the fact that attitudes have changed there's a, and there's much greater pressure on people like me and academics to publish now... Um, it is still relatively few, or a relatively few amount of scholarly publications. That's not to say he didn't work extensively on his stuff. If you ever go to the Bodin Library Modern Manuscript Reading Room and leaf through his lecture notes and research notes, you'll see just how much material is there, but it just never got into print. And there was a common phrase at the time, and I still hear it said, Lewis published too much and Tolkien too little. <coughs> or as C.L. Wren once remarked, Tolkien is a genius. If only he wrote accordingly, what wonders could he accomplish? And in a lovely conclusion to um, this brief study of Tolkien's life, I'm going I'm to use from Humphrey Carpenter, who wrote probably the best biography of Tolkien. It's many years old now. In this, he summarised Tolkien's career as follows. It was the ordinary, unremarkable life led by countless other scholars. A life of academic brilliance, certainly, but only in a very narrow professional field that is really of little interest to laymen. 
And that would be that, apart from the strange fact that during these years, when nothing happened, he wrote two books which have become world bestsellers, books that have captured the imagination and influenced the thinking of several million readers. And to be honest, it's these books which have caused all the problems. But they've also made him a household name. If he'd simply remained a medieval scholar, no one would have heard from him outside of this narrow professional field, as Carpenter calls it. He'd not be known across the world and would not have attracted all the attention he has done, good and bad. Let's just say a few words about his uh, mythology itself. Um, we know he began writing some of this as a, as a young man um, when he was particularly when he was convalescing back from the First World War, uh, and, and many of the tales then appear posthumously in the Silmarillion. He began writing The Hobbit sometime, as we said, in the late 20s, 30s, early 30s, publishing in 1937. 1951, he had to revise The Hobbit because in the original draft, Gollum is a much more sympathetic character, and by then he'd worked out what this ring was that Bilbo finds. Um, and then the so-called sequel starts to appear. Uh, he actually started writing The Lord of the Rings in 1937, but it didn't really, he didn't really finish it until 12 years later, and it didn't actually get published until 1954. As you can see, Fellowship of the Ring appearing in July 54, Two Towers in November 54, and who can imagine what the tension must have been? The Return of the King didn't appear for another 11 months. No one knew how it was going to end. And this is where the schism starts in, in terms of opinion, the division of opinion I noted at the beginning. Um, there's no doubt when, he, when the trilogy was launched to Fellowship of the Ring, he got fulsome support. A reviewer in Time and Tide um, said it was one of the best things he'd ever read, but as that was Jack Lewis himself, um, it doesn't really count. And Lewis uh, is a person who attracted his fair share of enemies, it has to be said. Lining up for the opposition, let's start with Edmund Wilson's 1956, Ooh, Those Awful Orcs, from The Nation, in which he described Lord of the Rings as balderdash and juvenile trash, and argued that the book would only appeal to British culture. What's wrong with that? Um, <laughs> there's also the anonymous reviewer. Well, he's not anonymous. We know it was Alfred Duggan, who in the release of The Lord of the Rings declared it is not a work which many adults would read more than once. Well, that moves me out, because I think I've read it about ten times. Philip Toynbee, in 1961, rejoiced that at last it was being consigned to merciful oblivion. Sorry, Philip. And, uh, and, and so on. I need not go on. The point's been made. And it's a point that may surprise many of you. You, you may, as may assume that this book has just been universally accepted, or both books, but it, it wasn't the case. Um, and Tolkien himself was aware of this, and he came up with this lovely bit of doggerel verse. The Lord of the Rings is one of those things, if you like it, you do, and if you don't, then you boo. Yet, you can't ignore the criticisms because they give us, as I said, an insight into some of the things Tolkien was writing. So let's have a look at these, these uh, things that people were saying under some, some loose categories. Uh, in broad terms, there, there are, first of all, there, there's the general detractors, but we can easily sort of get rid of them um, because they never actually have any evidence. They just, just make sweeping statements. These are the self-elected literati you'll hear on front row on an evening. Um, the thing I have with them, apart from the fact that they, they just say it's rubbish, uh, is that, you know, bubbling under their sense of their, their criticism is this, they, they're just outraged. Um, they just can't understand why anyone would want to read this stuff. Uh, Tolkien's just bad, in their view, and it annoys them even more. It gets even more popular. Why can't people just see the truth? So we can just ignore them because they're not serious. Um, Moving on to a few more tangible things, a common complaint which, um, which deserves a bit more attention is that Tolkien never deals with reality or real-life issues in his fiction. Uh, this is something that Philip Pullman 
regularly stands up and says, I have to say, he's a bit more lenient on Tolkien. He hates Lewis with a vengeance. Uh, well, of course, Pullman is forgetting, of course, that it's quite easy to write about the human condition without actually writing about humans. Um, it was a mainstay of medieval allegor allegorical literature, and you only have to look at Orwell's Animal Farm to realise that. And I'd also contend Lord of the Rings does deal with some things which are important to people. Uh, things like the seduction of power, tolerance of other races, defence of liberty, so on, so forth, and so on. Points which I'll come back to throughout the lectures. Then there is the uh, attack on his style. Uh, repeated criticism of Tolkien is also his perceived overuse of what you might call the archaic form. Um, for example, this is a bit from Aragorn when he's speaking at the Council of Elrond. And I have to read it, it's very difficult to read. If a man must needs walk in sight of the black gate or tread the deadly flowers of Morgul Vale, then perils he will have. Now, if you take that out of context, it does sound extremely clumsy. And if you had to read 600,000 words, which I think is what Lord of the Rings runs to, it would not be an enjoyable experience. But as many scholars have pointed out, such as Rosebery, um, what's happening here is that Tolkien is using a particular style for a particular context. Aragorn's at a a council, a, head, a meeting of heads of state. So therefore, he is using courtly, a courtly style. And Tolkien's characters are capable of shifting between style as befits their circumstances. So when a character is in a courtly scene, they speak accordingly, but then they can slip into more common everyday speech. This is an inconsistency. It's just drawn from standard literature. If you remember Beowulf, Beowulf's attitude when he's in Herod, he's using courtly protocols there. Um, it's exactly the type of thing that Tolkien read and studied all the time. The kind of things people would say under the circumstances, as one critic said. Yet it's undoubtedly true there are, there, there are sections in Lord of the Rings which just aren't very good. They're weak, and Tolkien himself knew that. It's several hundred pages long, so you're going to get slips in quality. But you get that in all long novels. I would defy anyone to read the Pickwick papers and tell me that it's perfect throughout. It is not. It is a fantastic book, but it has some really, really weak moments in it. Even his most ardent critics, as well, recognise the fact that he could describe natural landscapes. But more importantly, he had a certain way of capturing um, pace, which is really quite um, interesting. So let me read you this extract here from the uh, Siege of Gondor. And just think of the pace. Think of the way he's controlling repetition and pace in this. Then the black captain rose in his stirrups and cried aloud in a dreadful voice, speaking in some forgotten tongue words of power and terror to rend both heart and stone. Thrice he cried, thrice the great ram boomed, and suddenly upon the last stroke the gate of Gondor broke, as if stricken by some blasting spell it burst asunder. There was a flash of searing lightning and the doors tumbled in riven fragments to the ground. In rode the lord of the Nazgul, a great black shape against the fires beyond he loomed up, grown to a vast menace of despair. In rode the Lord of the Nazgul, under the archway that no enemy ever yet had passed, and all fled before his face, all save one. I'll be coming back to that extract, because it's one of my favourite parts of the book. So, just a few examples of some of the criticism levelled at Tolkien's writing. Uh, now let's have a look at something which is perhaps more interesting, and certainly more relevant to many of you in this room, um, which was uh, his contribution to the English syllabus, which you were all possibly suffering, uh, notably Old English. The Oxford English School only actually started the statutes got in 1894, and Tolkien joined the faculty when it was just over 30 years old, so it was a relatively new department. Uh, from the outset, it was always a school of English language and literature, um, and um, the first chair, indeed, that was co-opted into it was the chair of Anglo-Saxon. 
So the aim is always to give you and students of the past a tradition of English language and literature from its beginnings. Um, let me move on. Into this discussion, though, and particularly the discussions about where language fits into the syllabus, came Tolkien, two-footed, some might say. So in 1928, in his unpublished lecture on the Germanic verb, which is a thrill to read, uh, he stated his desire to keep alive a language side in our swollen school. Uh, and this was a struggle that needed strong minds and hearts if all failed. We would leave the absurd English school in peace to the simple throngs who groan over an old English reader, well glossed in pencil in their witless way, having bibliography as their hope. If you don't gallop off after the poltroon son of Odd, if you stay upon the field of battle where the best should be, then for heaven's sake let it be felt you might save the school and yourself as well arguing very strongly for a retention not only of Old English as a compulsory part of the subject, but also the language side. And he writes in the Oxford Magazine in 1930 quite a lot about this. In his closing remarks to Oxford, he again draws on his, or attacks again this idea that there's a division between language and literature, which he said is a false one. Um, and he pushed for an expansion of the language paper throughout his career, retention of compulsory Old English, which he saw as far more important than the study of a a writer called Shakespeare, um, and in his uh, essay, uh, single, uh, Secret Vice, he says languages both strengthen imagination and be freed by it. Close the remark, I therefore felt it grievance that certain professional persons should suppose their dullness, dullness and ignorance to be a human norm, an anger when they have sought to impose the limitation of their minds upon younger minds, persuading those with philological curiosity from their bent. Uh, these, needless to say, have caused ripples then and continue to cause ripples now. And when I joined Oxford, there were still people ranting at Lewis and Tolkien for butchering the syllabus, the so-called Germanic wedge. Um, you'll also come across uh, comments about his qualities as a teacher, um, that he wasn't particularly good at lecturing. Um, these are mainly from his, the students who sat in here and other lecture rooms, the famous ones who came on. Uh, he, he himself recognised he was a bit ineffective as a lecturer, and Lewis once said, unfortunately, you won't be able to hear anything he says, and described him as an inspired speaker of footnotes. Um, we don't have any recordings of his lectures, but we do have this, this interview where he's trying to explain what elves are, um, and it kind of captures, I think... Divine spirits and the God makes strokes in this, my fellow. You know, the God's made a primary error and some of the elves are meant to find out their way under the guidance of God. They, they invited the elves because uh, the, 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 the rebel amongst them was wicked. God, uh, no, no car. Was alive. Uh, was a devastated last part of the world. They took them back into their paradise to the west. You kind of get the feel of how difficult it must have been to follow a lecture if he'd been talking like that, where he just goes off on one. Um, but that, you know, let's not leave this unchallenged. Reddy, a student of Oxford, said he was a great teacher and delightful, courteous, ever so kindly. W.H. Auden attributed his attraction to medieval literature by hearing Tolkien recite Beowulf in his original. He said, I don't remember a single word, but at a certain point he recited magnificently a long passage of Beowulf. I was spellbound. And we must remember that Tolkien also did a lot of work on his teaching. But I'll leave the final quote to Dougie Gray, um, who said where he was actually at a Tolkien lecture. There was a stillness in the room as if the Green Knight himself had come in. He really understood, as few medievalists do, the importance of performance for medieval literature. Finally, there is the... Um, well, sorry, not finally. There are also the uh, criticism of Tolkien 
in terms of his academic output, um, which I've mentioned before. He was aware of this. Um, when he returned from writing The Lord of the Rings, he uh, said, I have only just returned from a year's leave leave, one object of which was to enable me to complete some of the learned works neglected during my preoccupation with unprofessional trifles, such as the Lord of the Rings. I record the tone of many of my colleagues. Now, it is not, uh, not fair to say that um, Tolkien himself felt under siege and sat passively taking all this in, all these criticisms. He, he was quite a strong person. For example, in a reply to a negative review by Edwin Muir, of Lord of the Rings in The Observer, Tolkien quipped, blast Edwin Muir in his delayed adolescence. If he had an MA, I'd nominate him for Professor of Poetry, Sweet Revenge. <laughs> uh, a short, uh, uh, perhaps even more damning, is, is some unpublished notes um, where he was commenting on uh, the, writer, the American scholar Burton Raphael. Raphael, it's, it's all quite rather sad, really, obviously admired Tolkien's work and um, sent him an off-print of an article he'd written called On Translating Beowulf, uh, Tolkien didn't think much of this. In fact, he writes in, thankfully it never got published, he described it as conceited nonsense by a man whose other versions exhibit a very imperfect knowledge. Um, in the essay, he says that uh, Raphael's attempts to explain his translation are at best a foolish misuse of a talent for personal poetic expression, at worst the unwarranted impudence of a parasite. Strong words indeed, which thankfully never reach Raphael, I hope. Perhaps the most interesting criticism for me, though, is the one at the bottom, um, which is that other academics feel that his fiction, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, present a dumbing down of the subject. So by setting his books in a pseudo-medieval world or incorporating into the material drawn from Old and Middle English or Old Norse, he's somehow trivialising the subject and pandering to the lowest common denominator. Um, I've tried to, probably in this talk so far, I've separated this idea of the two, or kept the two parts of Tolkien's life separate, I should say. On the one hand, he was a medievalist. On the other hand, he was writing fiction. Uh, and inserting some form of gap between the two is, of course, wrong. They were constantly intermingled, which is a theme I'm going to pick up on and which Dr. Solopo will pick up on as well. Earlier on, I outlined his career that, of an academic who taught and studied medieval literature and language with a particular emphasis on Old and Middle English. Uh, and it's well known, as I said, that Tolkien's interest in languages, especially ancient ones, began when he was young. Not surprisingly, this love of medieval language and literature finds its way into his fiction, and many books have been written on this. And I, if you want to read two, the one that I would rec first one I recommend is Tom Shippey's The Road to Middle-earth, and the second one is The Keys of Middle-earth, which Elizabeth and I wrote, because it's very good. Um, <laughs> But by way of illustration, I'm going to use an extended example, which I use in my old English lectures about the Wanderer, but I want to talk a bit more about that in detail, uh, and link this to a short piece in The Lord of the Rings. Um, but let me make a few comments about Tolkien and uh, his studies, his fiction, and, and so on. The simplest thing to begin with is to say that he widely read all aspects of medieval literature, and he, as I said, he concentrated on English and Old Norse, um, in these texts, he came aware of all kinds of characters, tales, myths, historical events which were tantalisingly ambiguous. You can almost hear him saying, what were the true stories and origins of these poems that he'd been teaching and researched? It puzzled, infuriated, and at the same time excited him. And he held these stories in his mind, and when he came to write his fiction and to establish his mythology, he puts these all together into something new. As he said once, 
One's mind is, of course, stored with a leaf mould or memories, and these rise up to the surface at times. This idea, like if you make a, a compost of leaf mould, occasionally things will bubble to the surface. He saw this also in, in the writers of the time. When writing on Gawain and the Green Knight, he said, it belongs to that literary kind which has deep roots in the past, deeper even than its author was aware. It is made of tales often told before and elsewhere and of elements that derive from remote times. So what he was acknowledging, therefore, was that his own writing in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit would contain elements of the text he'd studied and taught, consciously and subconsciously. Um, the conscious, de deliberate attempt to include this is perhaps more interesting to bridge the gap between the ancient world and the modern one, as Shippey said. Why did he do this? So why does he start to use medieval texts, medieval themes, etc., in this book and in The Hobbit as well, to a certain degree? Well, first we know he, he greatly admired the literature, so it's understandable that you might draw on something he just thinks is very good. Anyone would do that. Secondly, we know that he often played around with composing with medieval texts in the original language. Um, and when he read a medieval work, his desire was not so much to make a philological or critical study of it as to write a modern work in the same tradition. So he starts to, he, he, he states quite clearly that this is something he wants to do. Third, and this is something I'll have to come back to next week, he's possibly attempting to provide, and the phrase is misused, a mythology for England to explain why in these medieval texts that he'd read, etc., the authors and the audience were quite comfortable in introducing creatures which we now would find unbelievable. Why is it in this poetry or in this literature? There are mention of elves, dwarves, dragons, and so on. And he's perhaps attempting to provide a solution to that. And finally, it ties in with a theory which, again, I'm going to come back to next week, that of sub-creation, which is what his theory was in terms of how you write a novel. So what I'd like to do is now consider a specific example to show in some detail um, of how the medieval half of his life influenced his fiction. And uh, I'm going to consider an episode in The King of the Golden Hall, this chapter in The Lord of the Rings, um, when the remnants of the fellowship, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli and Gandalf, arrive at the main settlement of the Rohirrim um, called Edoras, which is ruled by their king Theoden. Uh, now, I'll just show this clip. Some of you have seen this before because I use it in my lectures, but anyway. things in the film are obviously wrong and they change and one of the things is of course that Theoden does not utter those lines in the book. Uh, they're actually spoken by Aragorn when they're waiting to approach uh, Theoden's hall and um, what happens in the scene from the book is that Aragorn recites a piece of Rohiric poetry. Legolas describes the language as like the land surrounding them rich and rolling in part and else hard and stern as the mountains. 
doesn't actually say what Aragorn says to begin with, but Legolas guesses that the poem is an elegy of sorts, and he states that even though he can't understand the words, it is laden with the sadness of mortal men. So Aragorn then, helpfully for Legolas and Gimli, translates it into common speech for his comrades. And this is the poem that is recited by Aragorn in, in, in common speech, the above one. And of course, as you know, and if you certainly if you remember uh, my lectures, this is the famous Ubi Sunt passage, a paraphrase of it, um, from The Wanderer. Aragorn says it is the poem uh, by a forgotten poet of Rohan and is related to the story of Eor the Young. Um, but as you know, of course, it isn't. It's Tolkien paraphrasing that, as I said. A clear example of medieval literature just being used by Tolkien in his fiction. It's not quite the same, though. Um, there are some differences. Uh, the repeating of the direct questioning at the beginning is there, but the answering lines explaining what has happened to everyone are longer in Aragorn's version. And Tolkien also making much heavier use of Enrhyme, as you will see. Um, certainly then the Old English. I haven't got the Old English up there, but you can believe me, it doesn't use Enrhyme. Uh, and does not always attempt to retain alliteration, Tolkien doesn't, as you will see again. That he chose the Wanderer isn't surprising that it would appear in his book, by, by the way. He loved it as a poem. He called it an epitaph, epitaph on antiquity, an epitaph on the now long vanished Anglo-Saxon days. And in many ways, that's fitting because the Lord of the Rings is an epitaph. It's a passing of the Third Age. And it's clear that this Ubi Sunt passage meant quite a bit to him because he quotes it in his valedictory address, his departing speech to Oxford as he retires, uh, followed by what he calls nonsense, uh, Galadriel's l Lament at Lorien. It's even a poem he stated writing in the early 1940s which offered sustenance and support during the current catastrophe, current catastrophe of course being World War II, and it offered consolation to those threatened by the likes of Hitler and Stalin that there was, in Tolkien's words, no happy ending to Cunningus or Caesars of this world, whichever new names they may give themselves and whichever side they be on, left or right, black or white. The old English poets knew that at any rate. So a clear example of Tolkien's studies, influence are finding their way into his fiction. But what's important here is he doesn't just bung this in. Well, that's a nice bit of poetry and just slot it in. It fits in to a, a much wider ambition, um, which I think is a testament to his skill. It's entirely appropriate that Aragorn says these lines, which unfortunately was lost on Peter Jackson, um, because he, of course, is a wanderer. He's the ranger, one of the wandering folk, as he's described. Um, in the uh, poem, uh, the wanderer is described as the Earth-stepper, and Aragorn's nickname at Bree is Strider. Uh, like the subject of the poem, Aragorn is in exile, looking for his home, seeking peace and the joys of the hall. He's suffering, knowing the pressure on him to face the challenge of Sauron, that at the same time bears the burden of seemingly hopeless love for Arwen. Uh, unlike the Wanderer, Aragorn is not looking for a lord. He's struggling with the fact that he may have to become king one day. But on a wider scale, the Wanderer fits into something which is much um, more important, namely Tolkien's depiction of the Rohirrim, which is these race of cavalrymen, if you like. To all intensive purposes, they are fictional depictions of the Anglo-Saxons, um, and many commentators have noticed this. They reside in the Mark, a name which comes from Old English Mierke, or Meark, meaning border, which is where we get the term Mercia from. Rohan names are taken from Old English, and in Tolkien's notes to translators, he confirms this when, for shadow facts, he states, this is an anglicised form of Rohan, that is Old English. 
They live like the Anglo-Saxons. Their main settlement, Edoras, is an idealised Saxon village. Um, it's dominated by a big feasting hall called Mediuseld, which is the Old English for Mead Hall in Beowulf 3065. It's described as the Great Hall of Men. Um, it even looks like Heorot. Um, and indeed, when uh, Gimli, Legolas, Aragorn and Gandalf approach Heorot, it's the scene lifted directly from Beowulf itself. The, Anglo uh, the Rohirrim are also uh, model themselves on the Anglo-Saxons in terms of their society. They're very loyal to one's ruler. Um, Theoden means lord, even in the face of death. Their leader in return rewards them with protection and treasure, standard relationship we get in Anglo-Saxon society. Um, and particularly uh, is at the Battle of Pelennor Fields when Theoden is killed by the Lord of the Nazgul, the troops rally round and hang on there to, to defend him, which is exactly the scene in the Battle of Molden. <coughs> and judging by Tolkien's comment that the styles of the Bayo tapestry made in England fit them well enough, so they probably even look like the Anglo-Saxons. Aragorn described them, the Rohirrim, this is, uh, in a way which perhaps sums up uh, the Anglo-Saxons in, in, in an idealised state. They are proud and willful, but they are true-hearted, generous in thought and deed, but bold, but not cruel, wise but unlearned, writing no books, but singing many songs. And if you look through the Lord of the Rings, if you look at the songs, the poetry of the Rohirrim, it's based on Old English metre. The Ride to Gondor, Theoden's Battle Cry, Eomer's Lament, um, the Mounds of Munberg, and so on. He also uh, states elsewhere, um, Tolkien this is, that the language of the Rohirrim basically is Old English, um, though they speak common speech in the book, otherwise no one would have understood what was going on. Um, that doesn't stop Gandalf walking in to Theoden's Hall and going west through Theoden Hall. Um, he, Tolkien, when he talks about the languages, uh, and these are a set of notes recorded by his son Christopher, he said, the language of the Shire is modern English, the language of Dale, which is the dwarves, is Norse, the language of Rohan is old English, but modern English is kind of the lingua franca, um, spoken by all people, but rather badly by orcs. <laughs> and when the heroes encounter the Rohirrim guards for the first time in, in, in this area, this scene, uh, the men are noted as saying, stay strangers, here unknown, but in the tongue of the Riddermark. Now, in the Lord of the Rings that was eventually published, we don't know what exactly that meant, but this is what Tolkien originally had them saying, as you can see, perfect old English, apart from missing the thorns, and so on. So something quite elaborate is going on here. If you put the pieces of the jigsaw together, the poetry Aragorn recites, which is hinted at as being a form of old English, the depiction of their society, and so on, shows a sensitive handling of the source, um, which I don't think is dumbing down, going back to this criticism that Tolkien was dumbing down medieval literature. Far from it. Um, my own personal story um, was that I read The Lord of the Rings, and it was at the time that the BBC radio production came out, so that dates me, um, when I was a teenager, <coughs> and um, I had a very good English teacher who took one look at what I had in my hand and said, perhaps you might like this, and gave me a copy of a translation of Beowulf, and I've never looked back since. Um, so it came as no surprise when I read Beowulf that suddenly things started sounding very, very familiar, because I'd read Lord of the Rings enough times. Now, it may come as a surprise, as I, I conclude this lecture, that Tolkien himself felt uncomfortable with this. He didn't like to link Rohan and the Anglo-Saxons. He, he downplayed it, actually, saying, well, they're kind of like it, but only in a bit, um, which is, of course, untrue. 
And the reason why he may have <coughs> played this down comes back to the title of the talk, The Medievalist and the Mythmaker, and something which I've conjured around with this talk, this lecture so far, in terms of the two parts of Tolkien's life. That although he recognised um, he heavily drew on medieval literature for his fiction, he was still at the root an academic, a point I made at the beginning. <coughs> Again, in an unpublished note, he was at pains to state no one would learn anything valid about the Anglo-Saxons from any of my lore, not even that concerning the Rohirrim. I never intended that they should. Even the lines beginning, where now the horse and the rider, though they echo a line in The Wanderer, are certainly not a translation, recreative or otherwise. They are integrated, I hope, in something wholly different. And this is key, and it demonstrates a point which I want you to take away from, from this lecture itself. He was a medievalist, and he was a mythmaker. But even when the latter, the mythmaker, was drawing on the former, the rigour and discipline of what he really tried to do, what was his real job, always won through. In this example, then, which is just one example of many that we could pick from, he clearly modelled the Rohirrim on the Anglo-Saxons, but he felt the need to stress, albeit in uh, an unwritten note, that you couldn't learn anything about the Anglo-Saxons from the Rohirrim. To do that, you needed to go back to the traditional sources, to the history books, to Old English poetry, to Old English prose, to the archaeology, to the art. His borrowings and reworkings, as he realised, did not suffice. They were distorting historical truth. He used elements of the Anglo-Saxon poetry and culture, that is true, but created something new to entertain, not to inform. So, returning to that last criticism of Tolkien, in my view, this is not dumbing down, but actually a very sensitive way to reuse material, but at the same time, a clever strategy is at play here. If his stories were successful, which I think we'll all agree they were, and did capture the imagination, then maybe, just maybe, the readers would wish to move out of his mythology into the real thing and start to look at medieval literature for themselves. In a backdoor way, then, he was guiding people through his fiction back to the things which he had studied and he had taught and he had wrote on, written on for many, many years. So, although he may not have written as many scholarly articles or books as many of his contemporaries, through his fiction, he's probably made a greater contribution and a greater service to medieval studies than many other more famous medievalists. So, it's these two aspects of his life which may seem so separate at first. The mythmaker and the medievalist were actually very closely entwined and there was a common purpose in mind. Next week, um, what I'm going to do is specifically look a bit more at the structure of things like The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, take on a bit more of the critics, because they're always fun. Um, but specifically, I want to take you through the complete ambition of Tolkien's mythology, which I think may surprise you. It isn't just a book set in a made-up world or a series of stories. It's actually something a lot deeper than that, which is tied to the history of England. Thank you very much. Thank you.